Now, it'll come as no surprise to you, probably, that we're going to spend a few minutes in 1 Peter. Um, so if you uh, are so inclined, you have a Bible with you, uh, you might want to turn to the uh, first chapter of 1 Peter. Father, we bow before you, helpless. We pray that your Holy Spirit will take charge of our worship today. Let us serve you today. Let us hear from you today through your word, through your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, can you hear me all right? Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, chosen and destined by God the Father, and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's how Peter began um, his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor so many centuries ago. Sitting down with Mark and... Um, Silas, who is sometimes called Silvanus, uh, he wrote to affirm these early Christians in their faith. And after his greeting, uh, Peter reminds his readers um, of the living hope and the inheritance that they have through Jesus. He concedes that they've never seen him but he also says they love him. And by the time that he reaches the part in this letter that we've numbered, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Peter moves to the pinnacle of godly promise. Um, now, I'm reading from the RSV. You have other uh, translations, no doubt. But here's, here's what he says. It's, after he has identified them as, as children of God. You know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end of the times for your sake. Through him, you have confidence in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. You have been born anew not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, these verses that we've numbered 18 through 23 are wonderful words of assurance. But then comes something that doesn't really follow or fit for me. Verse 24 seems to be something of a post script to what has come 
from verse 18 and on. Peter writes, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You have been ransomed, he said. Uh, You have purified your souls, he wrote. You have been born anew. And then he writes, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. So let's just pause here for just a second. I like this random part. It said, does my soul good. You are ransomed. Those are some of the most important words that I have ever heard. Your soul, he writes, is purified. I'll take that, all that I can get. You have been born anew. That's what I'm looking for. But then Peter brings us face to face with our human situation. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. I wonder why God had him put that in there where he did. Let's just take a little detour for a moment. Um, uh, Peter is writing now this letter to the churches in the northern part of Asia Minor. Uh, It's it's now Turkey. And when you look at a map, you can see that the old apostle is naming the provinces in in a clockwise uh, rotation. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, There were a large number of churches Uh, in those Roman provinces, and they were not, they were not newcomers to their faith. Residents of three of these uh, provinces were witnesses to the advent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and by the time of the writing of 1 Peter, somewhere in the early 60s, maybe 62, 63 um, AD, some of them had been living out their faith for over 30 years. These brothers and sisters were not novices in the faith, but God apparently wasn't finished with them yet. So Peter, joined by Mark and Silas, was moved by the Holy Spirit while in Rome to write these Christians an epistle of joyful encouragement. So let's go on now to what we call chapter 2. Peter wrote, So put away all malice. Now, what's going on here? These people are ransomed. Their souls have been purified. They have been born anew. That's what Peter wrote to them. They're born again Christians. And yet he tells them to Put away all malice. Could there have been some saints in those first century churches of Asia Minor that were harboring malice? Somebody who had uh, some deep-seated and often inexplicable desires to see someone, someone else suffer. 
someone with petty feelings of resentment, some with a grudge, someone spiteful, someone with ill will, someone with the intent to cause alarm or pain or injury or distress to someone else. Were there some families in those early churches who were split not speaking because of some real or imagined wrong? Was there a know-it-all in the group who was impossible to tolerate and malice crept into the picture? Could any of that have been present? Could any of that have been present among the ransomed? Yeah, it could. Uh, malice must have been present uh, in the church for Peter to have instructed it to be put away. Put it away, he said. You know that you were ransomed, Peter wrote. You know that you were ransomed, so put away all malice. Put it away. But he wasn't finished. You know that you were ransomed, so put away all malice and all guile. Guile is an interesting word, isn't it? It means deceitful. It means cunning. Uh, operating with duplicity. Game playing. Were there game players among the first century church? Were there some who operated with deceit? day in and day out? Were some of those early Christians playing one another like violins? Did some seek to further their ambitions by guile? You know that you were ransomed, Peter wrote. So put away all malice and all guile. But he wasn't finished yet. Put away all malice and all guile and insincerity. Did the first century church have a hypocrite or two? Someone whose behavior just did not ring true? Someone that could just not be uh, trusted all the time? Peter seems to have thought that might be the case. You know you were ransomed, he wrote. So put away all malice and all guile and insincerity. But he wasn't finished yet. Envy. Put away all malice, all guile, insincerity, and envy. Apparently, there were one or two of those early Christians who had a painful or a resentful awareness of an advantage that was enjoyed by someone else, and they had a desire to possess that advantage uh, for themselves. You know that you were ransomed, Peter wrote, so put away all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy, but he wasn't done yet. 
put away all slander. Someone was apparently uttering false charges or making misrepresentations which defamed or damaged someone else's reputation. You know that you were ransomed, Peter wrote. You know you were ransomed. So put all of these things away. Put away all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy and all slander. Put them away. Now I hope everyone here understands I'm talking about people who have been dead for 2,000 years. Um, if, if this has any application to uh, modern times, uh, it's the Holy Spirit that's making it, not me. I'm talking about the people who've been dead for 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit may be talking about somebody else. So let me also share with you that I'm just a little bit puzzled here in the arrangement of the scripture. Our ancient brothers and sisters started out hearing those wonderful words of assurance and wound up being told to put away all malice, guile, insincerity, and envy, and slander. Why would ransomed, born-again people need to be told to put those things away? Does that make sense? Could it be that the answer to that puzzle might well lie in verse 24, which is just between that assurance in chapter 1 and this admonition in chapter 2. For it reads, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. Could it be that there is some connection between the glory of the flesh that he talks about in verse 24 and the malice and the guile and the insincerity and the, envy and the slander uh, that he talks about in chapter 2? Could there be some connection there? I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about the word glory. Um, I've been thinking about what one of my teachers uh, taught about glory years ago. Most of what I know about glory, most of what I know about glory is I want some. I want some glory. My old professor used to say, Get under the spout when the glory comes out. Well, whoever has the handle to glory, let me know. I want some. We learn in Bible studies and other places that the word glory is used to refer to those encounters of the divine and the human when the presence of God meets the earthly scene. His presence is somehow made known, made visible, and manifested. When God appears in a bush that burns and is not consumed, that's glory. When God encounters Moses, his man on the mountain, that's glory. When God meets his people anywhere, under any circumstances, that's glory. So the word glory is a fascinating word. 
In the Old Testament, it is a word that comes with it, the idea of weight or substance. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of an eternal weight of glory. In the Old Testament, the word used as weight or substance referred to that which a person possessed, causing others to give him reverence or respect. In biblical times, people were, people were portly uh, because they had enough money to buy food to become portly. So you might say that a portly person had a bit of weight in the community. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to see that the, how the meaning of glory could move from substance or weight to influence and respect and value and meaning and reality and clout. Glory could move along those lines. A person's glory, as we're now using it, is that which gives his or her life influence and respect and value and meaning and reality and clout. Have you ever thought about somehow some folks tend to show off their glories? I bet Peter was reminding some of those first century Christians that there were people whose glory lay in their ability to do something, to perform. There are some folks my age whose glory is in their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren. I mean, all you have to say is hello, and out comes the billfold with the pictures and all that. That's glory. Uh, there may have been some, some women in, in ancient uh, Asia Minor whose glory lay in their ability to cook, and they could hardly wait for the next ancient potluck supper. Well, let's be bold, and let's bring this word glory into the 21st century. Some folks know all the names of the football players and all the teams. Uh, that's their thing. That's their glory. Some folks shop only at the, at the very uh, uh, best and most fashionable stores. That's their thing. I know some teachers whose glory is in their books that serve roughly as wallpaper, only thicker. Well, what is our glory? And all of a sudden, the words of Jesus come to the fore. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. And they may be one even as we are one. Now, as I think about this word, I think I'm beginning to see a strange dichotomy here. On the one hand, our glory is what gives us meaning and weight and substance, and value, and radiance, and clout. 
our glory gives out. On the other hand, those are the very things that often divide us and fragment us and separate us and create malice and guile and insincerity and envy and slander. You know why that is? It's because our glory becomes our turf. Our glory becomes our turf. Now, don't ask me to define that precisely. All I know is when I'm on my turf and the opposition gets close, I become defensive and nervous. If my glory is all wrapped up in what I can do, I'm on the marketplace 24 hours a day, and that makes me edgy and willing to do some pretty strange things. And now the words of Jesus come back to us. How can you believe who received glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Think about that. It's a fantastic set of dynamics. You see, if I'm a good history teacher, and I try to be, and nobody knows about it, then how do I get my clout? But if I write and speak and perform, and you happen to be a better teacher than I am, I'm threatened, I confess. I'm threatened. And this could separate us and divide us. Remember, Jesus said, the glory which thou hast given me. What was Jesus' glory? What was it that gave him meaning and value and authority and confidence and radiance? I don't get the feeling that Jesus' glory came from where he lived. What does it say? Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus had some good people around him, but I doubt that his clout lay in his ability to direct and choose personnel. One of his followers betrayed him. One denied him and the whole bunch of them took off under pressure. I know that Jesus was a great preacher teacher, and I'm sure there must have been a sense of joy and fulfillment in his preaching and teaching. Yet during the most popular phase of Jesus' ministry, there was an underlying deep disappointment because the people weren't seeing what there was to see and they weren't hearing what there was to hear. Well then, what was Jesus' glory? I've come to believe that Jesus' glory was his total dependency upon his father. Throughout his life, he said, I came not to do my will, but the will of the father. The words that I say, I don't say of myself, but of the father who dwells in me and does his work. What I do, I do not myself. 
I do not seek the glory that comes from men. Jesus' glory was in the totality of his dependence on his Father, his obedience to his Father, his utter trust in his Father, his profound awareness that in the affairs of life, his Father was in control. And now I'm thinking that if my glory is something that I can do, that's really fine until someone comes along who can do it better. If my glory is in who I know, who I cotton to, then I'm dependent upon those people who might just let me down. And so I live defensively in tension with stress and sometimes with fear. But if I yield my glories to God so that what gives me my sense of worth and value is not what I do, not in what I have, not in who I know, if my glory is in my relationship with my Father, my total dependence upon Him, then when someone comes along who has more books than I have or who's read more of them or who can teach better than I can, it doesn't hurt quite as much for quite as long. Jesus' glory was tied to the depths of his surrender to his Father. When the crowds flattered him, he did not lose his poise. When they rejected him, he did not lose his nerve. When they crucified him, he did not lose his love. Now, of course, there is a fundamental need for self-worth. We know that. And meaning everybody needs to be able to do something. It'd be a terrible thing to grow up feeling like I can't do anything. I ain't nobody. Nobody cares. That would be uh, pretty bad. I know and recognize the need for a sense of self-worth and self-confidence and self-acceptance. It's just that when these things become the basis for our being, the ground for our glory, then it's all up for grabs. But if I can take my glories to the cross, I can use them or not use them without being personally destroyed and without dividing the body. And now I hear the words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I have to ask myself, what is my glory? I've got to ask myself, what is my glory? I know Jesus' glory. What's my glory? I can't back away from that. That's a probing question. Am I finding my meaning and value and self-worth in something other than God? If so, I need to give my glories to Jesus. 
and let his glory become my glory. And I also need to be sensitive to the possibility that there are some people who are saying, I don't have any glory. I can't do anything. I don't have any gift worthwhile. We need to pray that we can all find our worth in Jesus, our meaning in his love, our purpose in his will, our radiance in his fellowship. So we get to the bottom line. If we can recognize that all flesh, that all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, which withers and falls. If we, who have been ransomed, can give God all our glories, then we are better prepared to put away all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy and all slander, and then to pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.